welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Esbekuldeva. Joining me today are Azure Benjafel, a research associate at the National Center for Scientific Research in France, and Sebastian Larsson, associate senior lecturer in War Studies at the Swedish Defense University, to discuss their latest edited volume titled Problematizing Intelligence Studies Towards a New Research Agenda, which was published in 2022 with Routledge. This time we are recording live at the Oslo Metropolitan University with audience in the room, a huge audience, a big crowd here, so that's really great. <laughs> so it is my great pleasure to have Ajer and Sebastian here with me today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Arisa. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> so you've put together a very timely edited volume, uh, one that seeks to outline a new research agenda on contemporary intelligence. And we have seen over the past decades both new actors entering the field of intelligence and in this sense both its pluralization and privatization and we have seen the diversification of intelligence practices themselves the increasing reliance of different actors well actors well beyond the traditional field of intelligence on different uh, intelligence driven technologies geared towards the monitoring of deviance risk abnormalities and towards the manufacturing of suspicion and we have seen a proliferation of different forms of regulation, preemptive and security laws, such as the UK Prevent Act, to name an example, uh, which impose de facto both legal and moral obligations onto different organizations, employees and ordinary citizens to engage in intelligence gathering and reporting on suspicious behaviors. In other words, as you write, and I quote, intelligence is diversified and become increasingly connected to and understood as surveillance, policing, counterterrorism, population management, border checks, communications monitoring, and more. So it is in this context that you seek to open a discussion about intelligence as a social practice and as a set of actors and technologies which permeate ever increasing number of social contexts. And it is also here that you seek to challenge the conventional intelligence studies. Before we delve into the book in more detail, I would like you to tackle this kind of twofold argument. So first things first, the argument pertaining to the transformed landscape of intelligence. And second, bringing from this, uh, the argument for the need to go beyond the traditional intelligence studies. So maybe first you could illustrate in more depth the transformation of intelligence as a transversal social phenomenon over the past decades. Why is it important that we pay attention to intelligence being transformed? Okay, so I'll, I'll take that question if you, if you allow me, Sebastian. Sure. Uh, yeah, so first I would like to recall that uh, those, I mean, we had like in initial reflections that uh, have been published in an IPS article, so IPS is International Political Sociology. So the article is entitled uh, Towards Critical Approaches to Intelligence as a Social Phenomenon which has been co-written with well, Sebastian, but also Alvina Hoffman and Olivier Kearns. So as you hinted, um, Teresa, some of the key dynamics, so for instance, the preemptive logic, the mission change from Cold War problems to counterterrorism and policing, but also the digitization of information exchange, well, that have dispersed intelligence far beyond intelligence services uh, only, transforming intelligence, well, into a practice, but also into a stake over which, like, different actors compete. So, for instance, law enforcement officers, data analysts, engineers, border guards, and many, many more. So, as you can see, we have like multiple actors who, who actually claim authority over intelligence, but also actors who are not, I would say, the obvious or the expected actors in intelligence, 
but who nonetheless interface with intelligence when they come to contest, define, or resist uh, intelligence. And one key example uh, is politicians. So as we have seen with Brexit. So for instance, what they did is that they really challenged the very continuation of uh, security and intelligence cooperation with the European Union by, I was think, raising a stake among intelligence professionals, but while well, just telling them, well, we're going to Re, uh, withdraw from the European Union, so we're going to lose access to a European tool. So that actually created a concern among intelligence professionals. So you see how this, how professional politicians, um, politicians can get really connected to uh, intelligence, which for them is not, a, I mean, their daily job, basically. And I think it's, uh, and this is something that we try to to explain in the book. I think it's really important to pay attention to the diversity of the people and practices uh, behind intelligence because. This is actually the key starting point, but also the main condition well, to build the lines um, of research that enable, in fact, to uncover the heterogeneity of intelligence and not just intelligence services only, but also generate new knowledge uh, accordingly. So the, the key starting point is really, and I think this is the main message of the book, is the observation of the daily practices of actors involved in intelligence. Any more comments to this? No, no, no. <laughs> it is clear that uh, these developments and the proliferation of intelligence actors and different managers of unease, as the Yebigo would put it, naturally requires a rethinking of traditional intelligence studies, right? This is kind of a point that leads from what you just said. Uh, so uh, uh, you call in this respect for a transdisciplinary approach. How do you conceive such an approach? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll say a few words about how we, how we conceive this. I'd say that our analytical approach uh, in this book consists of two moves and the first move here is perhaps the most important one uh, as I also talked about. We begin uh, by uh, departing from the practices and professionals of intelligence regardless of where they're situated in, in society. So this first of all allows us to uh, take a fresh look at the intelligence services themselves. So focusing on practices and professionals we draw on sociological, anthropological, ethnographic uh, lenses and perspectives to see what intelligence services as social actors are actually doing, including the increasingly dispersed uh, effects of their practices, as well as the, the new forms of cooperation uh, with other actors as well. And as I guess we'll discuss more in a minute, uh, this kind mm. of take actually goes against many of the preconceived ideas among mainstream political scientists and intelligence historians um, that basically who view intelligence services as more or less neutral functions or extensions of the state and its foreign policy apparatus. So rather we try to reintroduce the human dimension here. Um, and using this practice-oriented approach then also immediately allows us to see how intelligence professionals, those who are actually doing intelligence today, are not restricted to the so-called community of the regular intelligence services. Rather, we see more clearly the, this new broad kind of problematization of intelligence that you've just discussed here and how it's become increasingly tangled with the fields of security, surveillance, policing, counterterrorism, and also, of course, the various actors uh, in, in these fields. Mm. So basically, as we trace intelligence practices today, we are led into other intersecting neighboring areas in society. This, of course, then leads us to the second move of our analytical approach uh, in the book, uh, as you mentioned, the transdisciplinary perspective. Studying contemporary intelligence requires us to follow lines of inquiry that similarly cross disciplinary boundaries, simply put. 
So in fact, when we started our, our project uh, here on, on intelligence and, and with the book and so on, we saw quite quickly that perhaps the best observations of intelligence today had been made in other fields than that of intelligence studies itself. For instance, previous work in police studies, criminology, critical security studies, science and technology studies, uh, surveillance studies, of course, legal studies and so on, uh, have all made the, perhaps the most crucial contributions to our current knowledge about contemporary <coughs> intelligence. However, the problem here is that most of these areas or bodies of, of research and scholarship do not really engage that much with uh, each other, nor with the debates and issues in intelligence studies. So our approach means moving between and connecting these various areas and debates to try and create a serious and sustained uh, transdisciplinary dialogue. Very good and a very important move, I think. <laughs> so you outlined several problems with the existing intelligence studies, as well as with the so-called critical intelligence studies. What are the problems with these approaches and why do we need a new perspective and your perspective? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, um, yeah, I think, I mean, in the book, we have identified at least like two problems with intelligence studies. So the first problem is the Anglo-American focus of existing literature. So the field is, well, dominated by Anglo-American scholars and, you know, professional associated with uh, Western state bureaucracies. And also the particularity of the intelligence studies uh, field is that it's actually dominated also by, by those uh, actors that we call pro-academics. So those former practitioners who became uh, academics and who turned, if you like, their know-how and assumption into like academic or scientific knowledge. And that actually has like a kind of a strong and visible effect into existing research, which well, in fact actually focuses on the experiences of uh, intelligence services well from the Anglosphere. And so those conclusions then are mobilized to account for, uh, I would say, intelligence everywhere. So, so basically what we see is that we have the, those very strong American conceptions of intelligence that are then used to account for, let's say, what the policy is doing in Europe. And this is a problem because this is completely disconnected from the analysis of the actual practices that make up, I would say, daily policy. So that's the first problem. So relatedly, the second problem is that, well, intelligence is defined as a function for the state. And so as such, so intelligence studies as a field of scholarship has this, you know, what we call this functionalist agenda. So one that seeks, uh, seeks uh, if you like, to improve the performances of intelligence services in assisting uh, decision makers. So that's what we usually, I mean, that's what they usually say, we built or we construct the theories for intelligence instead of theories on intelligence. This is what we're doing, basically. So that said, that said what, we, what we saw recently is like new initiatives um, emerging under the label of critical intelligence studies that they seek, in fact, to kind of uh, reformulate debates on intelligence. Well, this is I mean, I have to say, this is a welcome move for sure. But of course, it's a move that actually well remains, I would say, prisoner of this functionalist mindset that I just described. So intelligence, uh, critical intelligence studies still aim to contribute, to contribute to intelligence effectiveness. And it's not necessarily against uh, theories or studies for intelligence. So. I mean, against this background of, you know, this like state agenda, if you like. So, I mean, we need, uh, I would say, like new perspective, which what well, it is the rationale behind the book to build knowledge on intelligence that, well, first of all, questions, but also breaks up 
with uh, intelligence studies, dogma and, and assumptions. But also, we also need this new knowledge that, that is more, I would say, um, autonomous from the categories of understandings built by state practitioners. And so this is essential in our view to generate, I would say, research on intelligence that is, well, in fact, driven by the observation, as Sebastian said, observation of practices and actors of intelligence and not driven by like a state agenda, if you prefer. Exactly. So the book, uh, let us turn to the content and the other chapters as well. The book is divided into three parts, followed by a conclusion wherein you sketch out precisely this path uh, that you just described building on the insights gained also from across the chapters. So in the first part, you turn to the reconstruction of the object of intelligence. This part features your introduction, which we just discussed, and uh, two other chapters. One is titled Towards a Reflexive Study of Intelligence Accountability by Bernardino Leon Reyes, Reyes, something like that. <laughs> and the other titled Tracing of Preemptive Intelligence-Led Policing by Liam McWay. Uh, the first deals reflexively with the question of oversight and map maps out several commonsensical positions taken by intelligence scholars while trying to uncover in a way the disciplinary unconscious, while also pointing to the processes of legitimization of the intelligence agencies and their overseers. While the author is not here in person, as is the case for with the other contributors. <laughs> I think you will have to speak for them. And I would like to reflect to you a bit on what is the key takeaway in this contribution and what can be gained from, from this type of reflexive approach to understanding intelligence that he sketches out. Mm. Okay, I'll try, I'll, I hope I'll, I'll do justice to the, to the chapter. <laughs> no, I mean, what I, I think that the, the main idea and what I really, really like about this chapter is how the author actually showed the proximity of the position of intelligence studies scholars to intelligence practice. So the chapter actually shows how they, well, convey this functionalist agenda I, I spoke about recently and how actually they sustain the interest of uh, intelligence services. So basically the, the author shows this by uncovering I mean, several dominant arguments about the oversight. So for instance, the idea that um, overseers can access documents of, in, of intelligence agencies, but under secrecy. So turning overseers as guardians of the law, but also as guardians of secrets. The other argument is to say, well, oversight, the oversight body must be neutral and apolitical to conduct, I mean, the job effectively. Whereas what, what he actually argues in the, in, the, uh, in the chapter is that the biggest push for oversight were actually deeply political, as we have seen with uh, this, the partisan activism in the establishment of the church committee uh, in the United States. And I think what can be gained from a reflexive uh, approach to intelligence is, well, first of all, as he did in the, in the chapters, he well, actually really question the position of scholars writing about, I would say, uh, oversight and being actually attentive to how uh, researchers approach their object of study with like a specific life trajectory. So how certain ideas or assumptions on intelligence are actually driven uh, by the experiences in, let's say, Anglo-American settings or by specific, I would say, experience within, let's say, like an um, intelligence agency or like a specific like academic environment. And so has he tried, has actually he shows in the, in the chapter, in, in having this reflexive, I would say, move uh, that enables, in fact, to as well, to break with the commonsensical views 
and instead like pay serious attention to well actually the oversight practices uh who does it and what meaning do actors give to oversight how do they understand this thing that we call oversight and so in some it's like a kind of sociological and anthropological inquiry that actually um questions received ideas on oversight on the basis well on the well the analysis of concrete and everyday uh, practices entangled with uh, oversight. Indeed, and this is an important first move. And then we move to the next contribution in this by Liam McWay, which deals with the preemptive intelligence-led policing in Britain. And he shows how previously peripheral actors in domestic law enforcement, such as customs officers, port authorities, transport police, tax authorities, and so on, have come to play crucial roles in intelligence collection and analysis. And as such, the chapter traces the departure from reactive intelligence strategies towards preemptive intelligence-led strategies. And I think this is a move we see in predictive policing uh, over, overall, not only in this particular case. Maybe you could uh, recount some of the key moments here uh, and their implications for the proliferation of intelligence actors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as, as, you, as you said, Liam here in his chapter traces the social genesis or the social origin, if you will of preemptive and, and preventive logics uh, that have come to permeate not only policing, but arguably the entire field of, of security, including the professionals of, of intelligence and surveillance. So this is a chapter that's very rich uh, empirically mm. in its analysis of, of UK intelligence-led policing. So I'll recount for the sort of larger lessons here, uh, according, according to us or according to me. Basically, Liam uh, here illustrates that if we want to understand the contemporary context of intelligence work, as well as how we arrived here, uh, we should trace not the history of intelligence services, but rather the logics by, where, by which they and also the other related security actors operate today. And doing so, it becomes quite clear that the most important logics are not necessarily the conventional sort of intelligence logics of espionage or protecting state secrets, but rather, uh, again, the logics of preemption and prevention that emerged initially in the police, in police work and crime control. So this basically means that to go back and understand the logics that currently characterize most of, of, of the intelligence work, we cannot, in fact, do a history of intelligence services, but rather we should do a history of policing. Uh, so this, I would say, is, is the main takeaway, even if though may, I think uh, all of the intelligence historians out there will, will complain. <laughs> Liam also shows, I think, that even if we focus a lot on contemporary or, or modern uh, intelligence work in our book and in our, our book series, this doesn't mean, of course, that we're ahistorical in our project. We are most certainly historical in our approach, but we want to focus on the right things. We want to be historical about the right things. So again, not the usual intelligence services uh, and their official histories, but rather preferably the logics by which they operate in, in this case. Indeed, and in part uh, two of the book, we see more of this kind of logic play out. You look at the practical transformation of contemporary intelligence through five case studies. And the first contribution in this section by Amna Kalim looks at citizen-led intelligence gathering under UK's prevent duty. This is indeed an interesting case of an imposition of an intelligence regime by placing statutory counterterrorism obligations on teachers and doctors in the conduct of their duties, both expanding the powers of the state and making intelligence gathering a routine activity, while framing it also as a duty of care and safeguarding. 
Uh, and I think that what goes for prevent, namely the two-pronged approach of an obligatory framework operationalized through consensual politics, manifests itself in other forms of regulation that demand the production of intelligence in one way or another, such as anti-money laundering regulation that demands the production of suspicious activity reporting from the banks and so forth. And we see this logic in the compliance industry. And I think that this chapter really nicely captures the slippery slope towards securitized civil society. Uh, and also, you know, in our research with Bitness, you will comment a bit on that later. We also deal with this workplace surveillance and uh, and precisely this kind of intelligence logic spreading in the workplaces. And here we have a kind of a case that that really kind of shows how from the regulatory framework, it trickles down to the obligation on the teachers and workers to engage in intelligence practices. So maybe uh, you could say something more about uh, how people are being drawn, sometimes even against their will, into this nexus through law and morality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, this, so this is the part of the book where we start to look at intelligence gathering and intelligence work in sort of other areas in society, looking at other empirical sites. Uh, so Amna's chapter here, as well as her research more broadly, is absolutely brilliant, I think, in how it opens up the door for us to study what we could call everyday intelligence gathering, uh, or what we can call street-level intelligence, or perhaps the intelligentsification of, of civil society and, and or of or welfare work. Uh, so the larger context here, of course, is the transformation of our societies, especially in the years following 9-11 uh, and the so-called war on terror, towards the framing of threats as something already hiding in our societies, yeah? Uh, which has in turn, of course, legitimized the diffusion uh, of security and surveillance practices throughout society. So Amna, I think, convincingly shows here how when the scope of intelligence collection has broadened in this sense to include targets that are, in fact, ordinary citizens uh, deemed suspicious for various uh, reasons, uh, the range of intelligence collectors uh, similarly broadens to include, in her case, uh, welfare workers, uh, teachers, doctors, and everyone else under the prevent uh, duty in, in the UK. And elsewhere in, in other publications, uh, myself and also others have looked uh, beyond legal duties uh, to capture this, to also study um, citizen policing and everyday vigilance as forms of intelligence gathering, um, for instance, public campaigns to report suspicious people or suspicious behaviors, uh, like the campaigns called uh, If You See Something, Say Something in the UK or in the US or elsewhere in the world, or of course, uh, striking examples of this. Um, so again, the larger kind of context and problem here is that uh, we're all being imposed uh, the role of, of being an intelligence gatherer, more or less, uh, of, of street-level agents contributing to uh, the surveillance uh, machinery and, and to policing. Yet none of us as citizens uh, has any of the kind of accountability, of course, that the usual state authorities would have. So this is potentially dangerous, uh, but important to study and perhaps it should be uh, the topic for, for a standalone book. Mm. I think. <laughs> uh, yeah. So in the next uh, chapter in part two by David Cher. Yes. <laughs> he looks at prison intelligence in France and the emergence of counter-radicalization professionals, which follows a similar logic as prevent, the introduction of measures to prevent terrorism and the expansion of the powers of the administrative authorities, and then legally instituting and normalizing a permanent state of emergency of sorts. And this chapter speaks uh, again to the diffusion of intelligence logic in public institutions. Um, so. Uh, Jerry, <laughs> you're familiar with the French context, so maybe you could tell us more about this case and developments in France. Okay, yeah, um, 
it has like a few things for us. So, so since the the passing of this uh, counterterrorism law in 2016, so prison guards are have been allowed to conduct intelligence uh, activities against well suspected inmates like intercepting communications, uh, like phone tapping, putting like discreet cameras in jails, etc. And so the intelligence power powers of those guards have also been like extended by a new law in 2017. And so that personnel, and I think this is like the, the key thing here, actually uh, works closely with uh, this thing that we call the National Service of Prison Intelligence. I'm not sure this is the perfect translation from French <laughs> to English, uh, which was well, since like 2019 um, has like a national responsibility um, to conduct like uh, counter-terrorism activities, including intelligence gathering, but it also actually recognized as a proper intelligence service in the same way as the other and pre-existing uh, French internal and external uh, intelligence uh, services. And so the thing is, those developments, so the, the increasing of this intelligence power of uh, prison guards that actually took place after what well, this mass casualty terrorist attack we had in 2015, so the, the Charlie Hebdo, the Bataclan, also the terrorist attack in Nice in the south of, south of France. So that actually really prompted, you know, elected politicians to take strong measures against terrorism to show the population that they were tough on, on, yeah, on terrorism. And that actually involved like preemptive measures to kind of detect signs of radicalization in prisons. So, but. And this is the what actually David shows in the in the in the chapter, like through like a brilliant ethnographic study with I think with more than one hundred interviews. <laughs> so he showed that this exercise of detecting signs of radicalization, what well, that has its limits, um, because so he shows that for instance the girls that have been interviewed raised that, I mean, I mean very indirectly of course. That the the question of the, the the legitimacy or the necessity, if you like, of monitoring and collecting intelligence on incarcerated individual individuals who are like behind closed doors, or for instance, monitoring empty spaces like corridors, for instance. And so, well, that actually also has has uh, like implications for well, civil liberties, and this debate is not new, because back then, so back in two thousand, um, yeah, seventeen, I think some politicians were actually willing to pass, again, uh, like a new law <laughs> to, um, I would say, maintain the monitoring of suspected terrorists or radicalized individuals once they are released from prison by making them wear, for instance, like an electronic bracelet. And so uh, we see, uh, like, we, we've seen like similar initiatives since then, including now. But all this initiative to kind of restrict the civil liberties of these individuals have been like, I would say, uh, rejected by the highest uh, constitutional authority in France. So now the government is trying to revise or to readjust the, I would say, the, the bill to make sure this will pass and enable those like measures outside the jail. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So in the following chapter, Jean-Paul uh, Anon. Yes. Checks closer at the manufacturing of intelligence <laughs> by both police and intelligence services in Germany, focusing on the case of regional police office in Bavaria, Bayerisches Landeskriminalamt, uh, arguing that the Bavarian system of systems depoliticizes data at the lower levels of collection and repoliticizes these at the upper level of their exchange. 
And he also views these processes through the lens of negotiations of power, capital among these agencies. So it's kind of more of a messy relationships between, uh, between, these, uh, between these organizations. So it points to these organizational complexities and, uh, and networks of intelligence production. Uh, so what implications do these insights have for your ambition to launch uh, new intelligence studies? <laughs> yes, this is ambitious, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, um, so, so the, the book series is actually very uh, attentive to the social processes underlying uh, intelligence practices. It is very attentive to the, the full range of things, if you like, that make up the everyday of, of intelligence in a rather actually disordered way. So relations, struggles, contradictions, and also mess as well, as uh, Jean-Paul has, has described. So just like everyday life as, as we would experience it on, at our level. And so, yeah, so the, the book series is actually like concerned with uh, the analysis of practical lines, in fact, dispersed across several uh, spaces. And so as such, I mean, the book series actually excludes a contribution that take like a priori conception of intelligence for granted and do not really, I would say, unpack intelligence to reconstruct the object of intelligence on, on the basis of uh, empirical observations, uh, um, ethnographic uh, fieldwork, interviews, like anything that actually enable to really capture the practical and human dimensions of intelligence. So that's basically the, the, the main rationale behind the, the, the book series. Mm -hmm. Indeed, and that's an important move to make also. And in the next uh, chapter, Damien Rogers turns to transversal practices of everyday intelligence work in New Zealand, offering a more globally oriented perspective and shedding light on transnational networks. And I think most importantly on commercialism in the context of deregulation and the proliferation of private intelligence actors and experts, consultants and similar. And this chapter speaks clearly to the call to study intelligence as a transversal practice, which you launch in the introduction. So what are the large implications of this study? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Damien, he takes more of a transnational or kind of international perspective uh, on intelligence here uh, and looks at New Zealand intelligence actors and their role in the so-called uh, Five Eyes Alliance. Um, here, of course, uh, the first implication, I guess, is that he problematizes the Five Eyes Alliance, showing in, in quite some detail that it, it, this is far from a, a symmetrical alliance or network and that the signals intelligence services involved in this network are all attached to the network for, for very, uh, very different reasons. New Zealand's uh, services, he argues, uh, collects and shares a vast amount of data with the alliance, not so much due to their own national security, in fact, but far more for, for diplomatic reasons and the supposed need to stay closely connected to the US in their global counterterrorism efforts and in their uh, digital surveillance programs. He then also shows how the New Zealand intelligence community is involved in uh, data collection activities due to domestic chains of interdependence as well, uh, especially relationships with the private sector. Uh, their intelligence services now cooperate uh, quite closely with a series of companies and commercial uh, actors and businesses in secret data collection. So they now share stakes, you could say, in this practice. So this is what makes this uh, case um, quite an interesting example of, of a transversal practice in a sense that it's tied up uh, through relations and interdependencies that are at once uh, global and local. I also want to add uh, a comment here on um, uh, Damien's research on um, the intelligence community's relationship with academia in New Zealand, 
<clears throat> he in fact describes how uh, the New Zealand intelligence community has a relatively strong hold over academic research on intelligence. Uh, the services regularly contract and fund academic scholars to conduct research projects for them or with them, uh, uh, essentially blocking them then to, uh, uh, from drawing critical conclusions or, or from seriously questioning their, their practice. <clears throat> so this, Damien argues, will in the long run pose serious challenges for academic freedom and autonomy among New Zealand security and intelligence scholars. Uh, it could in fact risk creating a new generation of functionalist bureaucratic scholars who participate uncritically in practitioner-funded uh, projects as a way potentially to boost uh, their careers as experts or advisors in, in the intelligence field. So this, this latter point on the dependencies between uh, academia and, and the intelligence community in New Zealand um, is an important one, we think, because it, it resonates so much with uh, how we read basically the entire field of intelligence studies and its history and how it once emerged, uh, as we discuss uh, in the introduction chapter. It's precisely this strong population of so-called pracademics um, in intelligence scholarship that has led it to adopt uh, such a narrow and uncritical, largely uncritical uh, frame of analysis. Okay. Yeah, I think the point about <laughs> academic freedom is also larger. It pertains to other fields of research as well. Oh, yes. uh, so, <laughs> so I think that's a general lesson there as well. But the next chapter is authored by you, Sebastian, mm. Mm. and it deals with the technological boundaries of intelligence and the relations between NSA and the Swedish FRA. It offers an interesting take on these relations and the transnational professional guilds of intelligence bureaucrats. So back to the bureaucrats. Mm. <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> right. So I, I also, like Damien, I situate myself uh, kind of in a transnational context here. Um, but I'd say that first of all, um, my main contribution with this chapter in the book is an empirical one. Uh, in the chapter, I critically examine uh, NSA's, that is the US National Security Agency's, mass surveillance practices in recent decades. This area is still in fact relatively understudied despite the, the Snowden revelations and the implications of, of those uh, leaks. And even more understudied arguably are the NSA's collaborations with actors abroad, like the small signals intelligence agency in Sweden called FRA, uh, for instance, who became considered by, by the Americans an extremely valued partner uh, in the early 2000s when it came to secret data collection and hacking operations for counterterrorism purposes. So I believe I, I tie into our larger agenda and project in a few different ways. First, similar to uh, Damien's contribution, I, of course, problematize conventional intelligence studies, assumptions about the so-called Five Eyes Alliance again, and particularly perhaps uh, the US so-called special relationship with the British uh, intelligence services like the GCHQ by showing that the NSA here, in fact, partnered even more clo uh, closely for a number of years uh, with this uh, Swedish agency, the FRA. I also tried to demonstrate the benefits of studying, sure, conventional actors, signals intelligence services in this case, but with a new lens. Uh, so one uh, a kind of perspective that isn't functionalist, it isn't state-centric or state-realist, but one which looks critically at the social actors and the practices involved. Uh, this move then enabled me to make the argument, you could say, that Sweden became valued to the United States, not primarily due to kind of high level foreign policy stakes, rather the FRA managed to take a key position in this transatlantic guild of intelligence bureaucrats due to their shared professional disposition uh, with NSA surveillance professionals. 
so you could say that Sweden and the FRA mobilized a combination of know-how, uh, expertise and skills that responded directly to a particular NSA need at the time, namely how to conduct secret data collection and hacking operations in the European uh, signals environment in a way that was then more autonomous from the uh, British DCHQ. Uh, so here the Swedes became central partners uh, thanks to their technological know-how, their infrastructural resources, as well as their capability um, to kind of skillfully navigate domestic signals intelligence law. Um, so this, I, I would say, is sort of the benefit of, of looking not at preconceived notions about these services, but, uh, but uh, if you look at you know, the practices and the actors involved, you get a, a slightly different picture of what's going on. And what do the Swedish uh, people think about this? But the mass collection of <laughs> <laughs> well, have a nice comment over yeah, no, the, <laughs> the debate was quite brief. I think it lasted for a few months around the, the Snowden leaks there, but then it sort of died down, unfortunately. Mm. But hopefully uh, we can uh, yeah, start up this debate again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So in part three, um, consisting of three chapters, you turn to conceptual considerations. And in the first chapter by Alvina Hoffman, uh, she deals with the question of regulating the internet in times of mass surveillance, unpacking different political imaginaries and legal principles behind the regulation of the internet, and offering a socio-legal analysis of intelligence practices and the enactment of boundaries on intelligence services scope for action on the internet. This is indeed a super complex legal terrain, and uh, so could you somehow sum up the key takeaway here and maybe what can a socio-legal analysis offer here that a mere legal analysis mm -hmm. cannot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good, very good question. Uh, yeah, I think that the main contribution of uh, Alvina's uh, chapter is, well, to extend the analysis of mass surveillance practices of intelligence services towards their relation with legal actors such as courts, legislations, but also internet users and how they can actually impose boundaries uh, to the expansion of intelligence in the internet. So she basically conceptualizes internet, the internet as like a space of struggles among like different actors. So those who fight for its freedom and independence and those who seek to increase uh, the control over cyberspace. And here, in fact, the added value of a social legal analysis as opposed to like a mere legal, I mean, approach is to, I would say, go beyond existing laws, um, documents and judgment by placing the social and legal worlds into relation with one another. So, for instance, in doing so, we can, uh, for instance, analyze how different actors have used legal frameworks such as transnational human rights law to advance claims on behalf of Internet users against uh, intrusive uh, surveillance. We can also study this transformation of authority as uh, state boundaries uh, are no longer well respected by um, intelligence agency and as internet users insist on universal human rights which apply everywhere so these are the main i would say takeaway and also the the main contribution of having like a, a social dimension to uh, analysis of law mm -hmm. So linking to these themes, Howard Marcusen writing surveillance in the age of commodification, both in the sense of commodifications and modification, following the Cambridge Analytica, uh, Analytica scandal, tracing the movement from keeping permanent record and watching as manifest in the Snowden revelations towards modification, which also implies a shift in the production of political subjectivities. 
so here it's again this kind of modification is the logic of preemption right it's tied into that what we discussed earlier so what can be gained here conceptually by tying surveillance studies critical algorithm studies and intelligence studies together this <laughs> is perhaps the most difficult question i think because it's potentially such a large one so what i almost want to do is to throw the question back at you and, and to, to you guys in the room and to you guys on zoom uh, because I suspect this might be something you've thought about even more than we have, <laughs> how to conceptually try to sort of link these these areas. So this may be something we can come back to uh, in the second uh, part of, of the session. Yeah, in short, though, I, I would say that combining intelligence studies or studies on, on of or about in, uh, intelligence with critical surveillance studies and algorithm studies would, of course, further problematize this caricature that intelligence is about analog forms of, of spying, like the use of human intelligence and secret agents with uh, secret codes and secret briefcases. So this combination of scholarship would probably further or better highlight and show that intelligence today is far more about digital uh, activities, digital monitoring of online activities and about the digital tools and technologies, including algorithms, AI and cloud solutions and so on that are, are uh, designed and, and deployed and put in place to uh, detect suspicious behaviors, flows and movements online. I think also coming back to Horvath's uh, chapter here, it also points towards a research gap uh, that is in great need of further investigation, namely how intelligence and surveillance operates in more concrete detail in the digital realm, and specifically how intelligence can be and is collected by social media uh, through certain technologies and algorithms that are typically designed, owned and, owned and administered by private tech actors. So that really points towards uh, yeah, a gap, I think. Mm. In the last chapter in the volume, Didier Bigon looks at the violence of performed in... Was it wrong again? No, 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 I was wrong. <laughs> I just like the way you, you try I, to pronounce it properly. I get always nervous with this French. <laughs> <laughs> Looks at the violence performed in secret by state agents, which also ties into your final call for both a reflexive break and the expansion of the analysis of intelligence. So very shortly, what is to be done uh, in the way forward? What, uh, mm. Because I think that, you know, some topics are covered in this volume very well, but I think there's a whole, mm. whole other areas that could be incorporated. So it seems like an expansive project. Mm. Yes, yes, indeed. I think it's the, the, the very beginning of a larger project and, and, and adventure, in a sense. <laughs> and um, and I think, it, I mean, whatever the, the future holds, and I think that the, the, key, the key thing and the key message here is really to start really from the observation of, you know, the, the practices and actors that make up intelligence today. So as we, as we show, so in the, in the books of the, you know, the law enforcement officers, like surveillance uh, managers, data analysts, I mean, all the people who actually claim something on intelligence, like uh, intelligence competencies, authority or anything else, and really to start really from that line in order to ac actually expand like future lines of research. So that could be really the, the real starting point or the really, yeah, I mean, the, the key message for anyone who would like to continue along those lines yeah mm -hmm. and to to conclude and come back to this uh, point on reflexivity and mm -hmm. the call for conducting a what we call a reflexive break with established intelligence scholarship uh, we we call for this break with established uh, intelligence scholarship uh, of course not out of spite but out of necessity 
we believe that in established uh, intelligence uh, studies doesn't really capture fully how intelligence operates today in this broad sense that we're discussing here today. It doesn't pay much interest to the forms of intelligence gathering that involves the police or surveillance companies or counterterrorism experts. I would rather consider them sort of outside of the intelligence community and not important. Mm. Right. So uh, they mainly care about the intelligence services and their role and their function and so on. But they only focus on these actors in a kind of strict and uncontroversial sense as a sanitized function of the government as an extension of its foreign policy uh, apparatus and military apparatus not as a side of humans and practices uh, uh, professionals doing controversial things right so we we basically insist here on laying bare and exposing the tight relationship between intelligence scholarship and intelligence practices mm. uh, intelligence studies have in fact historically served as a form of maintenance of intel intelligence practices a source of recognition for intelligence professionals rendering legitimate their activities that are essentially about violence right about coercion or at least about some form of symbolic domination so with this in mind our project here our book and our larger agenda uh, is therefore not strictly intelligence studies nor is it critical intelligence studies if this means that critical is simply sort of pasted on added on as a buzzword without conducting this kind of reflexive break with the discipline's history so it's not about functionalism it's not about improving the performance of intelligence actors rather again to come back to this this project's immediate point of departure is the study of the people entangled, entangled with intelligence and the violent effects of their practices. So our project is therefore broadly social scientific in scope. It's reflexive in its critique and we hope to inspire others to join us uh, in this effort. Yeah, we are on. <laughs> You've convinced us. <laughs> is there anything you would like to share with the listeners? Any announcement? Any um, upcoming Any announcements? Uh, I mean, the, we can say that the book series has been running for like a few months already. Yeah, like it, it yeah. was launched when we pub published this yeah. book. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and that we're looking forward to any book proposals that actually adopt those, you know, sociological and anthropological approaches to intelligence, but intelligence being understood as this interconnection mm. amongst several social occupational uh, spaces. So, if you have anything you would like to share with us, please send us our book proposal yeah. and we will be more than welcome yeah. to read and uh, and publish them uh, if possible. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Touch. I Get think we, th we take your invitation seriously. We. Okay, <laughs> I'm looking forward to your book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thank you for a wonderful conversation and this was Ajay Ben-Chapel and Sebastian Lachon on their latest uh, edited volume, Problematizing Intelligence Studies. So thank you for listening.